Welcome to Makeshift, a Mishbacha podcast examining the shifting trends affecting our community. I'm Sarah Eisman, your host. Today's episode, we're so excited to welcome Fanny Neyman, our very own editor from Family Table. Hi, Fanny. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. How long have you been with Family Table? And really, more importantly, what does your family really eat for dinner? <laughs> okay, I get, I get that question a lot, but I think you're going to be disappointed that the answer is really not that interesting. Okay. Let me go back to your first question. I've been with Family Table for over 11 years, about 11 and a half years. I trained in graphics and found out about a job opportunity in graphics, got to the Mishpacha office and interviewed for a completely different job, uh, which subsequently turned into the food editor job. Oh, wow. Glad you stumbled in there all those years ago. That's amazing. You've been enhancing our table for a long time. Thank you so much. Okay, so now back to the question. And we want to know, what does your family really eat for dinner? They have schnitzel. If I put on sauce, they won't eat it. They have meatballs <laughs> and spaghetti. If I change the ingredients, they won't eat it. What else? Lasagna. If I put in spinach, they won't eat it. Things like that. Mm. What's interesting about as my kids are getting older, I definitely see them getting excited by suppers that are more elaborate or different. You know, the more dishes I add, the more excited they are about it. They like the optics of uh, if there are a lot of little bowls, they love the way that looks. But only my older ones will be interested in it. Mm -hmm. That kind of segues really into our topic today, which is as much as things change, they kind of stay the same. I'm curious. I'm so curious to hear what you've been finding in these past 11 years. Are people still looking for the old favorites? Are they looking for something new? Like, what are you seeing? Right. So it's really interesting because when I started, um, you know, 11 and a half years ago, I think it was kind of pre-foodie in our world. People weren't necessarily looking for something totally different and totally new. People weren't into meat the way they are today. Yeah. They weren't into serving and parties the way they are today. I think back then there was definitely more of an emphasis on, you know, let's take the old and make it a little bit more of a pachka, which is so interesting. We were definitely seeing a lot more, you know, tricolor kugels, which we would never do today. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I remember it, it's like shocking to even think about. It. I remember the year that puff pastry kishka ground chicken knishes were all the rage. And it's like. Could you imagine? I can't even imagine people serving that anymore. I mean, I feel like we've come such a long way in terms of our awareness of health. But I remember for superior meats, I remember Schleimi saying that uh, you have to let me know. The magazines have to let me know when they're going to put out these new things because we've got to be able to keep up with all these brand new ingredients. He still says that to me. The butchers still say that, by the way. Mm -hmm. And there are some butchers, you know, that will give them a heads up on certain cuts. Just this past piece off, I had a butcher call me and say, you really have to stop recommending meats from the rib section of the cow because there's just not enough cows to go around to cover all those rib cuts. Oh, that's hilarious. I mean, you're really impacting tables across the world. That's pretty amazing. It is amazing. But I would say that it's kind of like this seesaw back and forth of what people want and they're looking for is impacted by the magazine, which is impacted by what people want and what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Meaning, I wouldn't say that a magazine can start a trend from nowhere and then assume that it'll take off and it'll be, you know, a new trend. I think that there's definitely a give and take that comes from the community as well. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a funny example of that. 
I would say it was about eight years ago, maybe more. We ran an entire article on sous vide and it was how to use it and maybe a couple of recipes we probably put in there. And it was before its time. And it didn't take off from that article. Not that I expected that sous vide as a trend would take off from that article, but it, it actually took a couple of years for sous vide to become what it became. And then it left again a couple of years later as if it never happened. But that's the way food trends are. There are a couple of select people out there that are still using it. But I think when recipe trends come out, they have to be in sync with what our readers are looking for and waiting for. La Coles Mandra Ace, right? I guess that applies to uh, food trends. Absolutely. That timing for anything has to be right. Yeah. So you're raising a really interesting point because I remember having a conversation with one of the women at the magazine one time. And, you know, we get a lot of heat at Mishpacha. You're setting the trends. And if yeah. you weren't advertising these hotels. Yes. We got a lot of heat for, you know, tablescapes and in general, any uh, foodiness that we introduce or an obsession with, with food that we introduce. Actually, I would divide two topics of tablescapes and obsession with food. Tablescapes, we wouldn't do tablescapes in the magazine if people were interested in them and asking for them and waiting for them and emailing us. Can you send me the recent, you know, tablescape that you ran? I want to copy it. Or where did you get the chairs or the glasses? Or we wouldn't run it if people weren't interested, mm -hmm. you know, and if the demand wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So I would say that we're really more following the readers more so than the readers following us. Wow. Interesting. I remember the way she put it. She said, do we mirror the trends or do we create them? And uh, I'm hearing you say that you feel like it's more that we're mirroring what people are looking for. Uh, OK, so I'll tell you, I feel like we mirror trends that are not necessarily something that we would take on as a cause, meaning I would never take on as a cause to uh, encourage tablescapes because I feel that it's too demanding for people who aren't interested in it. It's too demanding for Someone who doesn't have time or resources, you know, they're expensive to keep making new ones, you know, every opportunity. But something that I would take on as a cause is bringing back old Shabbos dishes. You know, my favorite column in Family Table is Taste Like Shabbos, where we interview the daughter of a hush of important woman and hearing how she created a beautiful Shabbos environment in her house and the recipes that she had as part of her Shabbos table. Yeah. So. That's a cause that I would encourage whether or not it mirrored the requests of the readers. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what are some of the trends you're seeing in the actual foods that people are interested in? I mean, there's so many shifts in the greater world towards veganism. You know, this one doesn't eat dairy and that one doesn't eat sugar and this one doesn't eat flour. How do you balance all that? Um, it's a good question because there is such a strong core audience that really wants the same foods that they've been eating for their entire lives in, in a familiar way, just slightly updated and just brought up to date with the trends. I think introducing veganism and that kind of healthy approach to eating is something that has to happen slowly. I really try to introduce vegetable dishes and salads and, you know, healthy, bright, colorful dishes to family table as much as possible in a way that's appealing. And I feel like meeting people where they're at but it hasn't been a very popular trend, I think, within the core audience. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the oldies but goodies? I mean, what are people just, they can't get enough of? Okay. I mean, it's been very popular recently to turn the Heimish food, the old, 
old time, old world food is very strong. It's still very strong. Uh-huh. Everybody wants your best babka recipe. Everyone wants the best babka and everyone wants the best chicken soup. They still want the tips on how to make the best chicken soup. We dedicated an entire issue to uh, the tricks for the best chicken soup and what each of the staff members do to achieve that. Oh, people are still interested in perfecting those recipes and um, making them for their families. Whether it's nostalgic or whether it's trendy, I, I don't know if it matters. There's something very cozy about it and very feel good. Yeah, I mean, I give a lot of thought to that, to how much power we have to create memories around a table, how much tradition plays into that, how much warmth plays into that. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that. I definitely do. Um, It's something that I think about a lot. It's something that I'm personally tweaking for my own family constantly. There's the traditional and the nostalgic and bringing that into our home this is Bobby's recipe or this is Bobby's recipe. And, you know, Bobby is actually my mother's mother. And, you know, something that she would make or something that's been in the family for a while or whatever it is. I think there's something, even if it's not the way I would make it today, if I tell my kids, you know, we're making this recipe because there's strength to connecting back to something that was meaningful in a previous generation, I think that that sends a very powerful message to them. Yeah. And, you know, going back to what I said before for a minute about obsessing over food, which is definitely not something that I would encourage, but doing something like that, meaning it doesn't have to be perfect. Babka doesn't have to be perfect, but it's Bobby's recipe. So, you know, we're making that because that's more important than having it be perfect. I want to kind of piggyback on that because the feelings that are associated with being around a table and the potential for creating that warmth. I mean, I think we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about how the brain works and we learn about how people work. And it's really about how do we feel about something? You know, there's that famous quote, I think it was Maya Angelou, and she said, they'll never remember what you did or what you said. They'll only remember how you made them feel. Right. I want to really kind of go back to what you were saying before about some of the pressure that people are feeling to create these elaborate tablescapes. And at the end of the day, like, What's the feeling we want to bring to the table? Right. Absolutely. So I would say that creating the tablescapes is something that people have to be really, really honest with themselves about. And if it's something that speaks to them personally for a creative reason, you know, or it speaks to their kids somehow, to their family, like it sets a tone in the house. Um, it brings in a yunta feeling, you know, I always laugh you know, with my kids that we have flowers before we have food. <laughs> Whether it's Shabbos or Yantif, flowers are on the table before there's food, always. Yes, yes. It creates a tone. It creates an environment in the house. They really love it. They do. They love it and they pick up on it. So I think that it, as long as it's done without pressure and tension and doing it because someone feels that they should or they have to or if they don't do it, you know, it's going to be embarrassing or something like that, then I think that it's a nice thing to bring into our homes. Again, it it can't be something that, you know, someone is ignoring the house and, you know, or whatever, whatever else is going on because they have to create that tablescape and then they do it in the name of, oh, we're making it nice for Shabbos. Like you really have to be honest and say like, is this creating an environment in my house where the people around me, the people in my house are happy and excited about it? 
and, you know, want to be part of it? Or is it something that they're like, oh, you're doing the table again? You know, you're always doing that and you're not making us uh, whatever. Right. Supper, projects, whatever it is. Right. I think that's the barometer. You know, Hani, I really appreciate your nuance here because I've seen a lot of black and white thinking around this. Ah, such a Michigan's and I don't know. And in my house, we never had that. And, you know, there's a lot of people who really want to just throw away the whole thing. And I so appreciate your approach where you're just asking people to be honest with themselves. Because for some people, it's the same thing with Shalif Manus, right? You know, for some people, it makes their purring. They get so excited when, you know, you have all these fun projects and it's colorful and it's coming and going. And for other people, it's just this huge dream. Right. And I think this really speaks to a larger issue where we have to be in touch with who we are as people and not jump on the bandwagon going in either direction. Right, right. You know, that whole piece of of being individuals and not feeling like we have to conform in either direction is such a healthy message, you know, at the table and beyond. Right. I feel like there's a huge demand on women hostesses, mothers of the household these days. The demand is endless. Really, it just doesn't stop. And it's, it could be very, very overwhelming. And these are like the cherries on top that become the meat and potatoes, meaning like people are making it so essential that they have to have it. You know, how can I enter Yuntif without a beautiful table seat? You can. If it's not your thing, you can. You know, when you give over the messaging that you're trying to give over in other ways, and that's not your thing. And I really just, I wish people would be more okay with that and feel more comfortable with the things that they are providing for their homes and their families and not kind of take out the frustration on the magazine. Uh Yeah. It takes a lot of self-confidence to say, oh, that's beautiful. It's not for me. And it's beautiful. And so happy for the people that really do get a kick out of that. Right. Another layer here. I think that something that we do try to be very careful about is not to use words like you must have this on your table and, you know, you must try this and, you know, like not using such strong language because we're just trying not to create that sense of like inflated importance. Yeah. Meaning it's important for some people. Some people get a kick out of it. For some people, it is important for some people. You know, I can't imagine entering Yantif without my flowers on my table, but that's my personal importance, right? I don't want to create uh, like this big balloon of importance around something that's just important for me. Yeah, you're raising such an amazing point because there's so much hyperbole, I hope I pronounce that right, in, in uh, social media and everything is must have and lots of exclamation marks and amazing with like seven A's, right? Yes. And, you know, the idea that something could just be nice without being over the top or the best or extravagant is, um, again, just such a healthy message. And I so appreciate that you have that sensitivity when you're writing that column. Yeah. It's insidious. It like creeps in. You don't even realize, oh my gosh, I must do this and I must do that. Right. I try, you know, throughout family table, we just really try to take that, that it's kind of like a desperation, Mm -hmm. you know, like I have to have this and I have to do it like that. Otherwise I'm not doing it right. I'm not raising my family the right way. You know, like it's, it's really not that important. If it's important for you, it's important. That's all. Yeah. Wow. Really do appreciate that message. Any other trends that you've seen pop up? I'm thinking even just in terms of, I know how different things are with the whole 
paper goods industry that's mm-hmm. completely changed. You know, I remember we have mothers and grandmothers who wouldn't have dreamed of serving, you know, a Shabbos meal or a Shabbat breakfast on anything less than China. And I don't even know, do people even use China anymore? Well, yeah, people definitely do. I, I only use paper goods sometimes. <laughs> but I think it's interesting what you're saying, which is that we create these rules for ourselves. Like you said, you know, my grandmother, my mother would have never dreamed of serving, you know, without a stemware on the table and, and without her finest China table properly set every Shabbos. And she worked full time and she raised the family. And how did she do it? You know? Yeah. So I, I think people create rules for themselves when, you know, they're not necessary. And uh, I think it would go back to the same idea as the tablescape concept of, is this for me and does it work for me? And it's just fine. Everybody's happy, even if we have paper goods. Mm. That's what works in my house, you know? So I think if people could say that and not create that extra pressure in themselves. I remember actually when I first got married, a friend of mine was making Shabbos for the first time. She made an insane amount of food, like an incredible amount of food. You know, she made a dessert and a cake and a cookies for herself and her husband. And she said, what do you mean? You can't just have dessert. You know, the cake is for the counter. Dessert is for the meals and cookies are, you know, to to look like a balabasta. (laughs) And I felt bad. I really did. I felt bad that she felt that she had to go through all that effort to prove to herself that she's a balabasta. You know, I'm sort of glad that this is a podcast and people can't see me hiding my face because um, I was that woman when I, I remember having an actual debate with someone one time whether cake counts as dessert. I'm like, no, cake is what you have in the morning with your coffee or with Kiddush. Dessert is like, you know, something. I mean, anyone who knows me knows that it's, if it's not chocolate, it's not dessert. So dessert is something that's creamy and mushy and chocolatey. And that's just a completely different thing than cake. I was really I mean, it was actually news to me that cake qualifies as dessert, too. So, yeah, I get it. Uh-huh. No judgment on that, girl. That's for sure. But we have mellowed. Now the family's glad if there's anything that came out of the oven. You know? No, I want to I clarify. First of all, no judgment at all, period. Yeah, no. But especially no judgment. If it's something that you personally enjoy, you know, you really enjoy at the end of the meal having something cold and soft or warm and chocolatey or whatever it is. If that's something that you personally enjoy, then go for it. But if it's something that you're doing because in some rule book somewhere, some unwritten rule book, it says that at the end of the meal, you have to have a dessert like that and cake isn't dessert, Mm -hmm. you know, then I suggest we rethink that rule book. Yes. You know, with the code of law that's unwritten. Yes. I mean, I think that that's probably the theme that you've really been expressing here. Let's take the pressure out of things. Right. Let's be real. Let's be authentic and let's be true to who we are and what works for us and what works for our family. And let's carve away the mishigas. And, you know, if it isn't working and it's creating more pressure than pleasure, then it's really time to reevaluate those decisions and reevaluate the way we feel about them and be confident in our own selves and the way that we do things without needing that outside um, endorsement. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious, Hani, have you seen any increased awareness in the community in terms of some healthier trends? I definitely have. There's definitely been a lot of awareness around grains and gluten. That's definitely something that's very common. In general, a lot of people are looking for lighter side dishes, vegetable-based side dishes, 
There's always people looking for more chicken ideas, specifically white meat chicken and white meat turkey. There's definitely a lot of that also. You know, it's funny. I always see in some of these uh, recipes, these chicken steaks, and I'm thinking, hmm, I don't know if that's made it here yet. I feel like that's a kind of a Lakewood item. Yeah, special order. Yeah. Another thing that we've moved away from a lot in the recent years is um, putting a lot of sugar in salad dressings. Yes. We don't do that nearly as much as we did a decade ago. A hundred percent. It used to be like equal amounts, you know, <laughs> like a half a cup of sugar, half a cup of vinegar and a cup of oil. Like, oh, my God, is this a cake or a salad? Exactly. It is so interesting, though, how things have the things that when I grew up, an egg was considered like evil incarnate. You know, you had to limit how many eggs you eat a week. And now it's like eggs become everybody's best friend. Right. Even I feel like even the meat boards. I don't know if any of that would have taken off if there wasn't such a focus on protein. You know, and every time I look at those meat boards with all the salami, I wonder, will people realize how unhealthy it is? Right. To be eating so much meat at every event. They're always there. There's always, you know, it's like the way sushi was at every event. Now there's always meat boards. And yes, there's so much salami on whatever. But there are people who will eat that and they won't have a slice of bread. You know what I mean? Right. So it's it's just so interesting how a lot of these trends really have been kind of fed from the knowledge that we have from, you know, the greater scientific world. And it's it'll be fascinating to see how that evolves. You yes. know, five years from now, will people be horrified at the amount of protein that they eat? Who knows? Right, right. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you're saying that, you know, there's a strong focus on bringing in more healthy options to meals. I find that as strong as it is, it's still slow in coming. I would want to see it come even more fast and more furious. I would say like for my own Shabbos and Yantif meals that I put a huge focus on the first course where I'll do like a few different salads and little appetizers, not like a heavy plated appetizer, mm -hmm. a few different options of, you know, maybe a green salad and a cabbage salad. Like I'll have my lettuce salads and the non-lettuce salads. Yes, it's work. But I think that I make that course into the stronger course. And then what comes after that is almost like, yeah, it's the main course, but it was preceded by a dinner size plate for the salad course, as opposed to a, a small salad plate, you know? So I would love to see that happening even more in our communities. Just I can tell you that sourdough has changed our life. I mean, wow. sourdough has changed our shop. It's, you know, by the time we're done with sourdough and all the Israeli salads and dips, who, right. who even needs anything after it's that? It's true. It's true because the sourdough lends itself to dips and little salads. So, you know, if you make that into a bigger deal and expand that a little bit to even more salads, then you're right. Then that's its own strong course. Yeah, so I guess there are some shifts, but I really hear you saying that uh, tradition dies hard. <laughs> tradition does die hard. And I would love to see more salads in general if being incorporated into people's menus. But that's just me. Everyone does what works for them. Right. You know, it was fascinating. I was uh, reading this piece of research one time and they were talking about how the sense of smell is the most primitive sense that we have mm -hmm. and that the memories that get made through smell are the ones that touch really the deepest part of us. You know, it's, it's like Nishima, Nishama, that it is actually connected to our soul. And I think about the power of walking into a house on a Friday afternoon yes. when you smell the challah and you smell the chicken soup and 
what that does to a person's emotional development. Right, right. As you were saying, smell, I was thinking Friday afternoon when the kids come home, what's happening at home? What does the house smell like? And you're right. Those memories will stay with them forever, you know, and it is a very strong sense. And thank you for reminding me um, that I should just place a strong focus on that and just think about that more, be more mindful of that. It's actually funny. Recently, my family ran through a bout of the flu. Uh, You still hear it lingering in my voice a little. And everyone was sick all week. I had kids home in and out the entire week for literally from Monday to Friday. And um, we sat down at our Shabbos table and Friday night I said to my kids, what do you guys remember from the time that we were all, you know, locked at home during COVID? I wanted to hear what were the memories, you know, we're, we're over two years later. Were the memories positive? Were the memories, you know, like what associations do they have with that time period? And they were all saying, you know, different projects we did and different uh, foods that we tried making. Those were their memories of that time period. And I was so gratified. I was actually pleasantly surprised to hear that that was what they stored in their memory bank, um, as opposed to how difficult it was for everyone to be, you know, at home together. And we didn't have cleaning help. They all had to chip in and and help with the household tasks. Mm -hmm. And um, it just, it reminded me to focus on creating memories like that. Obviously, a good environment and a positive environment is effective and beautiful. And, you know, an environment where, where people feel comfortable and people feel at home is beautiful. But sometimes that environment needs something to commemorate it. And doing something with that, whether it's a project or making a food or something, it kind of like locks it in. You know, it's like, we all love being here, but now we need something. So now we could remember how much we love being here. Sure. I mean, when you think about, you ask people about any of their memories of, you know, Yamim Tovim, inevitably, there's going to be food wrapped into that, right? This is what makes memories a lot of them. Good feelings are always going to be there, but somehow concretizing it is something that's important and something that, you know, I'm going to try to be even more mindful of. Right. So I really want to thank you for your time and for sharing all your thoughts with us and uh, a little bit of a sneak peek into all these decisions that you make and these beautiful creations. And we so appreciate you enhancing all of our tables. So thank you so much for being with us today, Fanny. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This was really great to schmooze here. All right. Thank you for that. Thank you for listening to Makeshift. Enjoy this episode. Share it with your friends. Have a comment to share about this episode, a topic you'd like to discuss, or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at familyfirst@mishpacha.com or at mishpacha.com slash makeshift, where you can also subscribe to receive updates and new episodes. This episode was produced by Jag in Detroit Podcast. Makeshift, a Mishpacha podcast.